The Lord has risen. He has risen indeed. <laughs> That's a message that came to uh, the Cleopas and the other disciple. We think maybe it was Mrs. Cleopas, uh, husband and wife. Uh, it was a common way that uh, writers in this era would, would refer to, uh, uh, to a couple. Um, the women not getting uh, the same kind of recognition and headlines that... Uh, it was due them, but uh, but that was that was the result of the of the narrative of the story. Uh, Mr. and Mrs. Cleopas start out in a in a place that uh, that maybe is not unfamiliar to uh, to people anywhere in, in any cultures. It's the same place that uh, that the Atlanta Falcons were in on. Uh, Monday morning after the Super Bowl, after they're leading by what three touchdowns and uh, in the third quarter, or was it four? Things locked up and uh, a victory, a big trophy for them to bring back to Atlanta. Or the Cleveland Indians fighting in the seventh game through ten innings, and in the day after finding themselves, how could defeat be snatched from the? from the jaws of victory like that. Or Hillary Clinton's campaign headquarters on November 9th. Or maybe closer to home, offices where someone has gone in for another day's work and instead finds a pink slip there on his desk. Or maybe in a lonely restroom somewhere a little piece of cardboard that refuses to show a plus sign. Or maybe a message from a doctor's nurse saying, you know that spot on your lungs, it hasn't gone away, it's, it's a little larger. Hope is such a fragile thing and we we live by it, we grasp at it. It keeps us alive and keeps us from the, from the pit of despair, something the Psalms are always talking about. Save me from the pit. But yet it's so elusive sometimes. And, and here, these two disciples are, are leaving Jerusalem. Maybe they're escaping Jerusalem because they too have heard about the about the animosity toward the followers of Jesus and maybe they saw Jesus suffer and be crucified. Maybe in the midst of other disciples that all of a sudden were like any one of those groups or individuals that I've named. Maybe you're naming situations in your own life where, where some certainty, some victory, some arrival, some destination suddenly evaporated or flipped upside down in what seemed to be a culmination all of a sudden is, is defeat and loss, utter loneliness and despair. They're walking along, they're trying to make it to the village of Emmaus, seven miles, 60 stadia from Jerusalem. It's not really sure now exactly where Emmaus is. There's several Emmauses in that whole whole region, that whole vicinity. 
and, uh, and they're joined by, by this stranger, by a visitor. Not unusual. Uh, pilgrims that had gone for the Passover would be returning to their homes and their villages and, and uh, instinctively kind of clumped together to, for safety and also, especially as darkness would be falling, uh, to be able to find the way. And the visitor starts uh, asking questions and you heard Amy's excellent rendition of this story. What are you talking about? And the sadness and the irritation, maybe the annoyance of, of the disciple. Was it Cleopas who said, are you the only one in Jerusalem? Or are you the only one in Jerusalem that, that hasn't heard what's happened? Maybe even choked out through sobs. Are you the, are you the only one... Are you the only one that doesn't know what happened? And Jesus, the rabbi, mighty in, in word and deed, we thought he was a prophet. He was the Messiah. We thought he was the one who would come to redeem Israel. You and me, us, all together redeem Israel. How we have longed and prayed for this for generations and centuries. And, and we were sure for sure, because of his word and deed, his presence, and the way that people were flocking to him, acclaiming him as king, that this, this would come to pass. We were all ready for it. And that didn't happen. He was crucified. He just didn't disappear. He just didn't lose an election. He just didn't lose a ball game. He was, he was killed and, and not and not in any humane way at all, if that's possible, but he was crucified, tortured, and, and suffered. We have a real clear message that Jesus and anything around Jesus is to be exterminated, put to death, dead. Now, on, on top of that, on top of that, it appears that his body has been, been stolen. And on top of that, it seems like there are um, other people of our, our group, uh, the women who have been seeing visions of angels. This is just getting more weird on, on, top of all the, on top of all the unbearable things. There are more unbearable, strange things that are happening. This is, this is a crazy world, and we don't know what to do with it. We just want to get home to Emmaus and to our, to our little home to hide in the darkness kind of breathe and, and if we can force ourselves to eat something, maybe yeah, get some sleep. Maybe wake up and find out this was just a nightmare and, and the things really did turn out okay after all. The visitor starts talking to them and gradually he starts talking more than they do and uh, kind of kindly but but maybe with insistence starts, starts explaining that, that no, this was all according to plan. Don't you remember the scriptures? How the Messiah would come and must, must suffer? Don't you remember that, uh, that there was a prediction that he would rise again on the third day? Don't, don't you remember? Don't you recall that? 
that he would enter into his glory. It doesn't seem to help too much, although the disciples seem to be listening, listening to the things that this visitor is telling them. And so that when they come to their home in Emmaus, that he acts as if he is going to be continuing on his journey, but they entreat him. They say, no, no, come in and stay. It is dark. You must come in, have something to eat, and, and stay. Not that unusual. It was a hospitality that we would be extended to, to other pilgrims, especially other, other pilgrims who would come from some distance, dangerous and dark on the paths, especially if you're alone. And so the visitor consents to that, and he comes in. You heard the story, and, and they end up uh, with bread. They end up with sustenance. And then, and then a strange thing happens in the midst of all the strange things that have been discussed by this visitor. Instead of Cleopas taking the bread, the host of the home, and breaking it, in blessing it, in giving it. It's the visitor who takes the bread. He takes, blesses, breaks, and gives. And then Luke tells us, in that moment, their eyes were opened. And they recognized Jesus. Alive and in his body. But in a a new, a new presence, that new kind of presence with him because he vanishes from their sight then. They recognize him, but, but then right away they can't see him anymore. So he was here, but he's not. Was he, did you see? I see. Yeah. Yeah, he was here, but, but I don't see him anymore. But he was here. And then, and then what do they say? They turn to each other. We're not, we're not our hearts. Were not our hearts burning within us while he talked on the road, while we walked along, while he opened the scriptures to us and explained those things. And all of a sudden, like the breaking of the bread and in their realization, things click into place and they realize that Jesus has been with them. Risen, alive, caring, explaining to them it's a different sort of Jesus a different kind of visitor who stays in this Easter season last week we talked about a different kind of wealth a different kind of wealth a passage from 1 Peter gave us the idea to talk about wealth, about, about our faith now that has been charged with the resurrection, with the, uh, with the, with the power of, of the glory of God coming into our lives through the risen Christ, that our, our faith and, and our life that is filled with faith is more precious than gold, yea, even more precious than refined gold. The wealth of that, the value of that, surpasses anything that we can place a dollar sign on. And our valuing of that should be in a whole different category 
It's different. It's different than anything that you have or own or accumulate anything that you would think would be of great value and comfort and security in, in our worlds. No, no, this is something better, something more and more valuable. It's the resurrection faith that has come to us in this Easter season. And now today we've got this different kind of visitor who comes and stays. This different kind of Jesus Paul tries to talk a little bit about the resurrection body to the Corinthians. Doesn't get too far in, in satisfying our scientific minds and saying, well, what exactly would that be like? But he's very articulate in talking about, about the power of the resurrection, about what God was doing in, uh, in receiving the humility of Christ and then raising him from the dead so that every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and everyone proclaim that he is Lord of all. That it is something that opens up to the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, he would write to the Corinthians. And so that we can be filled with the light of God in our lives and by that light we might be able to walk in newness of life. It's this different kind of visitor that we need to understand a little bit more in our Easter season. Lest we walk away from the tomb and the lilies that are wilting and say, oh, that went pretty good, a really good meal, and we sang the same songs and, uh, and, and the same lift in our spirits, um, same kind of assurance that all those who live and believe in Jesus will not die but have every have eternal life and have an insurance policy we can put in our lives. It's meant to be more than that. It's meant to be a new operating system. It's meant to be an update in the way that we process things. It's meant to be um, meant to be a hope and a trust to live by. The magnitude of this should be dawning upon us as it was upon Mr. and Mrs. Cleopas. It affected them so much that they had just walked seven miles to, uh, to their home. And now, and now with the news, when they were saying to each other that Jesus has risen indeed, uh, they don't, well, oh, let's watch the late show and go to bed here. No, they get up and they run, run back to Jerusalem. Man, they had some empowerment in their lives. Not only for the stamina to do that, to get back to Jerusalem. Let's see, a footnote says they were about 23 years old. No, no, they, they made it, but also in the danger of what they knew that trip might be. Fearless. Fearless, full of energy. And they knew that this was something that needed to be announced, confirmed. They were entering a new world with a new magnitude of what Jesus was now. Uh, N.T. writes in, in his book, Following Jesus, Oh, it is a very good and a wonderful thing to receive Jesus into your life. Only make sure that you know which Jesus you are receiving into your life. Hmm. 
And I think he was saying that sometimes we, we're, we receive a selective Jesus into our life. A Jesus of some, some wisdom and kindness. A Jesus uh, that maybe says some things that we resonate with. Uh, a Jesus that um, is good and has good intentions. A Jesus that, uh, uh, that, that decorates our lives and provides us with a, a solid foundational faith. I am a Christian. I am a Jesus follower. I think N.T. Wright was saying, make sure you know which Jesus you're receiving into your life. That the resurrected Jesus is one who is full of light and full of knowledge. He's full of glory. He is the culmination of all things. He is the representation of the Holy God. And as you receive that Jesus into your life, you better be prepared to be surprised. You better be prepared to have your life charged with new power. You better be prepared for some change that will happen when you receive that kind of light and knowledge and glory. Boaz Johnson is a professor at North Park Seminary. He was, uh, he was a source of our continuing education in the ministerial meetings uh, this past week in Lafayette, Indiana, on the Wabash River, which is flooded. You think we have a lot of water here. You should see what's going on on the Wabash. And, and Boaz, um, Boaz said that uh, ancient religions... Ancient religions seem to focus around three, uh, three central themes. The Jewish religion that uh, maybe we're most familiar with, Christianity, grew out of the foundation of the Jewish faith and, and fulfilled it. Um, our text was talking about that today. Uh, focused on the theme of lights, light and darkness. Light by which you can live your life, light... Uh, the light of God. A second uh, general theme in ancient religions is the theme of knowledge. Knowledge. And, uh, and maybe the Gnostics are a representation of, of, uh, of the search for knowledge. Or, or Greeks as a culture. To know truth and even to know that kind of specialized truth, disembodied truth from physical realities and, uh, and drags on our, our enlightenment, that you had a special knowledge and that would set you apart from others and you would find uh, a favor with the divine and you would be able to walk on another, another plane of consciousness. Then the third, the third general theme of ancient religions was glory. Glory by achievement and by, by strength, by, uh, by, by accomplishment, there would be fame and there would be recognition. There would be the uh, homage of, of other peoples and there would be the elevation to royalty and a God-ordained kind of uh, setting apart. And you could climb that, that, 
staircase of glory by your achievements, by following a code of conduct, or by proving through your might, through your strength, through your armies, uh, through your domination, that yes, I am worthy of everything that I command and all the homage, taxes, all the fame that you give me. Boaz also said that so these aren't just ancient themes, they are contemporary themes. They're universal themes. The lights, knowledge, and glory uh, maybe can have new, up-to-date examples that, uh, that, that light turns up in many of the conglomerations of New Age faith. And knowledge uh, turns up in, uh, in many of the Eastern religions as they seek to, uh, to know and, and seek to be enlightened. And certainly the realm of glory, maybe it was as typified by, by Rome and the succession of empires in ancient times, also has lived out right in front of our eyes and uh, in our lives in the different regimes and different uh, postures of intimidation and, and power that are lived out in our, our planet. We were listening very carefully to Boaz as he was talking about these things and nodding and filling in the blanks ourselves in our own experience maybe taking stock ourselves now lights, knowledge and, and glory which one am I into these days and he said the wonder of it all and the glory of, of Easter is that in Jesus all these things come together they're all available they're all available from the very source the creator of the world God's own self for light is not a bad thing, and knowledge is not a bad thing, glory is not a bad thing, but each can be compromised, each can be polluted, each can, can become idols taken out of context and, and worship for themselves. He lifted up 2 Corinthians 4.6, For it is the God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. All those things right there. Is that what Mr. and Mrs. Cleopas were responding to there in that, in that darkened home when, when the bread was taken and blessed and broken and given? They saw that it was Jesus, but more. They saw, they saw that this was the very glory of God. They saw that, that light was coming into the world and, and knowledge had come to them, not only in Jesus' teaching, but, but also their hunger and thirst for, for more of what God was doing and, and certainly the glory of God in raising Jesus from death and here alive in the midst is that why that they were empowered? That's why they were changed? Is that why their hope and trust were restored? You see, beloved friends, that's where kind of our faith registers. If you 
have a dashboard on your your life, kind of measuring things of what's going on in your physical, relational world. You can have a whole row of them. I love gauges on a car. And you have one row about your soul. You have a hope gauge and a trust gauge. Is it full? Is, is that half empty? Is it is it gone dead? Is there anything wrong with that gauge? It doesn't seem to be registering at all. It was was full yesterday, but now it's back back on zero. Is this on anyway? Am I dead? Hope and trust. They're essential components of a relationship to trust. They're essential aspect of our our faith in God, our, our receiving of, of what God has for us and our acceptance and our, our belief in that. Therefore, we hope we're not undone. We're not defeated. We are not dead or dying. We have hope. Hope and trust. It was really restored that evening in the lives of Mr. and Mrs. Cleopas. And the witness that uh, Chuck read about in, in Acts, it's kind of at the end of the sermon that, uh, that Peter read. Chuck didn't read the sermon. Thank you, Chuck. It's a good sermon. We've already looked at pieces of it. But, but this part where it says, this promise, this promise is for you, Peter says to all who have been listening. To all have been hearing about the unfolding of the, of the truth of God and the resurrection of Jesus, the one whom you, you crucified. This is a promise that the Holy Spirit, God's own self, is for you and for your children and for all who are afar off. He was talking about the people that were right there, but he was... He was led by the Spirit to talk about an arc of people beyond that. The Gentiles then was maybe whom people thought he was talking about. Maybe that's what Peter had in mind. But they and we often say things far beyond our own, our own power. He's talking about you and me. He was talking about generations to come. He was talking about cultures that were, were far from that culture yet not far from the ark of the power of the resurrected Jesus and not far from the experience of Mr. and Mrs. Cleopas either so that into our lives even in those kinds of places Jesus visits he comes and maybe he comes because of our despair Maybe he comes because of our longing for this resurrected Jesus. Maybe he comes because we have hit bottom because our gauges of hope and trust are pegged out at zero. Maybe because we have no other place to turn. Some of you received the covenant companion. A new one came while I was gone. I looked at it and spotted an article by there by Royce Eckhart. Many of you know Royce. He helped us get this organ. And Royce is a retired covenant musician now. He edited, arranged 
many, many hymns in our, in our hymnal. And talking about himself there before the article, he said that, uh, that's why I like the Covenant Companion, these little blurbs, this is not part of the story. He said that, uh, that once in the prelude to a wedding, uh, because people were chatting and talking so much in the sanctuary, he played an improvisational arrangement. It sounded like Bach, he said, but it was an arrangement of three, three blind mice. <laughs> and he said, I don't think anyone ever knew that. And uh, that's Royce. But the article is about, about, about being at McDonald's uh, and, and enjoying their fine cuisine and uh, Another placemat was, you find these in, in places now, um, inviting people to contribute to the cause for curing leukemia. And he had his meal and he looked at that as idly reading the, the prints and, and his, his whole soul was opened up because he remembered his, uh, his brother, Teddy, when Teddy was six, Royce was 11, Teddy was diagnosed with leukemia. And this was decades ago when there was no hope for leukemia, even for an extended time of living. And that became the, the story of Royce's article, Find It, Read It. And he, he was taken back there to the feelings that he had, the sense of despair and the sense of helplessness and then hopelessness. 11 years old, he witnesses his parents uh, going through, um, through, through dread and doing everything they, they can to bring Teddy to Denver for, for treatments. He, he remembers um, all that and, and how how he, he felt like he had nowhere to turn. That there was, there was a helplessness that, that was destroying his world and taking it apart. And Teddy died three months after his diagnosis, then it didn't seem to change too much as they went through the motions of, uh, of the funeral as they, as they continued to be devout in, in their worship, as they continued to, to live their lives. But, um, uh, but eventually, he said, time heals and, and, uh, and I moved on. And, uh, and my parents also were, were able to... Uh, uh, to find an equilibrium and in, in, in their faith sprouted in, in new ways like never before. But there at McDonald's, it's like he had, he had to face that reality again. His disappointment with God. The feeling that, uh, uh, that Job was someone who came to his mind. How could he, how could he say, even if you slay me, I still will trust you. Job, probably the most ancient literature in the Bible, said that. How could he do that? And yet as Royce reflected on his life and something that had, that had slammed into his consciousness now, 
he, uh, he started weeping. He realized that tears were splashing down on his, his burger and he said, I'm not going to be able to eat this. I'm going to... And he had to leave and, until they call the cops and get, get me somewhere or something. So they left, but he was, he was weeping at the realization that God was faithful. That God had sustained him, that God had, had used him, and that, that God had continued to impress on him that I have come into your life and I have stayed, that I'm here. And that he was a firm foundation. A firm foundation for his life, for all the ups and downs, for all the, um, the swings of hope and trust. Those are my words. In his life. And so that, that whole experience as it, as it began in, at Emmaus type, these are my words, Emmaus type experience like, oh, Oh, I thought I was going to have a wonderful life with, with Teddy. How old would he be now? What could we have shared? How disappointing, what a loss. Will I ever get over that? Partly, no. But yet beyond that, God's power to sustain, God's power to be present in the ordinary, in the ordinary of Roy, Royce's life, in the ordinary of the development of his gifts, in the offering of his gifts to to the body of Christ, to the church, so that this witness became new and fresh, empowered. And it all happened in such ordinary situations, and it resulted in praise. How firm a foundation, ye saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in his excellent word. And he finishes by quoting that hymn, of course he would. He's a hymnologist. And he's blessed people through the hymns of the faith. Which begged the question to me, how does God visit my life? How is God present and trying to get my attention? Or for anyone here today, how is God present in your life through this different kind of visitor, this Jesus not only is coming to your life, but who stays. Who stays. And maybe in the most ordinary things, the most seemingly ordinary things, in the taking, in the blessing, in the breaking, in the giving of bread, those kinds of things in our lives. Is he trying to get our attention to help us realize and help us renew our hope and trust, but all to result in praise as the choir is sung and as we're going to sing right now. 248, Jesus lives 